0: The news story was, look at this like cringy video and people are actually clearly wanting this device because there's thousands of pre-orders.
1: I'm Jim Huffman and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question, what would you do if you were starting today? Today, we're talking about a taboo subject. The actual conversation really isn't that taboo, but the content could be considered that because of the industry we discuss. So if you're easily offended, then I apologize because that is not at all my intention with this podcast. But if you're open minded and want to learn from an industry that really people don't talk about, then stay on. Today, I have Brian Sloan. He's our guest, and he is the founder of Autoblow, which is a sex toy company that does, well, it's pretty self-explanatory. But here's why I wanted to talk to him. He's grown a global direct-to-consumer product that is doing well into eight figures. And here's the impressive part. He's done it with just two employees. And... He's been able to do it without doing traditional things like Facebook ads and Instagram ads. Instead, he had to get really creative with how he's done growth by using non-traditional channels like porn sites, and he's had to do epic press stunts. And it's worked so well it's gotten him on the Howard Stern Show, HBO, GQ, Playboy, and more. Um, so if you're open to learning about innovative ways, ways to grow your business, then this is definitely the episode for you. So again, really hope you get some of this content and the goal is not at all to be offensive. So I apologize if so, but um, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. I have Brian Sloan on today and I'm I'm very excited for this one. I think this will be um, a fun one. Um, I'll learn a lot from. And so Brian is the CEO of um, an eight-figure business that is growing like crazy Um, very intelligent e-commerce that has one very, very popular flagship product that I'll let him get into. But Brian, welcome to the podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. So um, I'm lucky to know Brian through, we're both in Seattle. Um, There's a group called EO and uh, I met Brian through that. And um, it's been pretty fun to kind of meet Brian and like learn about his experience. And you've been in EO for, for how long now?
0: I joined in the Beijing chapter in maybe 2012 or something, and then I was in the Berlin chapter later, and then now Seattle. So I don't know, on and off. I had a, a period out, maybe eight or nine years, I think.
1: Yeah, and um, you just joined a very um, select group uh, or forum based on your P&L that I'm envious of, but we can talk about that another time. But first, Brian, um, I want to talk about you. You have this product, Autoblow. Um, that one could say is like in a category that people are not familiar with, which is kind of adult toys, sex toys, whatever that is. Before we even get into that, I'm very interested to see like, how did all of this get started to kind of get into that industry?
0: Yeah, long story short, I graduated from law school in uh, 2005. And while I was in law school, I mainly saw up close the life of lawyers. And it was it was not uh, what I had hoped it would be. It was pretty brutal. Um, there was a cap to how much money you could earn uh, because you were basically working for time uh, and there was no way to scale. You know, those lawyers didn't have a way to scale their efforts. And at the same time, I mean, if I, if I didn't find something else, I'd probably still be doing it. But while I was in law school, I discovered local auctions and um, to pay for part of my living expenses because I was taking loans at the time I just started going to auctions, buying mostly antiques there and selling them on eBay. And that really exposed me to another possibility for my life, which was a life of buying and selling things. So that that really started just sort of seeing that I could scale my efforts. You know, I can make a good buy and I could make, you know, a thousand bucks. Whereas if I was were working as a lawyer, I would need to work for hours and hours and hours uh, running my brain at full capacity to make that same thousand dollars. So I just figured out there was something else
1: so you kind of got the edge you saw like hey i can make money outside of traditional ways of becoming a lawyer but actually selling something online and so you're doing it through auctions and then does it get into i can buy products and resell them or i can start to manufacture when did you start going down that path
0: um yeah so after i graduated i was doing i moved instead of antique auctions i moved to doing bankruptcy auctions it just had, it just sort of broadened what I could buy and sell. It came to me that it wasn't going to be my future when I had rented a, I don't know, 20 foot long U-Haul truck and I was towing uh, my car behind it. And the the U-Haul was filled with um, furniture I had purchased at a factory auction in Indiana. And uh, I realized this is also not as scalable as I thought it would be because I'm driving around the country, buying trucks full of stuff, selling it. So, I searched eBay, I was really an expert at the time about what kind of stuff you could uh, find on eBay and what you couldn't find. And I found a category there of latex fetish wear and um, it had high prices and very few sellers. So I used at the time um, Alibaba, I located a company in China, a factory that that made latex fetish wear. And I started ordering the uh, sort of clothing and bondage items and at first just selling those on eBay. And really, it was from that first experience buying from a factory and and listing and selling that I saw, Okay, now I'm able to move. I sort of started to understand the path to move from auctions where the supply of goods wasn't constant to ordering something that was more constant and selling that.
1: So that kind of starts to get into this category. So you see this persona where wow, there's like high demand, maybe they're price insensitive. This is something that you're interested in. And then how does that lead to kind of this flagship product?
0: So uh, at the time I was, I was going back and forth to Beijing, actually to an antique market, buying antiques to sell on eBay. And I met a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and interesting foreigners living in Beijing. And so in 2007, uh, I decided to move to Beijing. And what I started doing at first was just developing that that latex business. I had a website made, so I moved off of eBay and I started selling the latex fetish word direct to consumer on a website. And I started to sort of uh, learn how to market that. And I was just working at home, basically in my apartment uh, there in China. And uh, long story short, the more I got into selling the latex, like specializing, making special kinds of, of the material getting into some niche communities online to try to sell it to people. I also came upon the same problem I came to with auctions, which was this is certainly more scalable than driving around a truck, buying things from auctions, but now I'm limited to a very specialized product that's less scalable than I I had hoped. So it really was only because I sort of reached what I consider sort of the end of my interest in, in latex about the scalability that I started thinking, well, what other kind of things can I make uh, or sell that don't have very many sellers interested and specifically have some kind of moral sort of part that block people from participating in the industry? And so since I already had discovered latex, you know, uh, and the only reason that there weren't more sellers of, of high margin retail uh, latex fetishware were because it's weird <laughs> to sell it because the people have unusual interests. And so it didn't attract that many sellers. So I thought, okay, what's more scalable than this, but still has a moral component where people don't want to get involved uh, and, yeah, and with a larger market. And that's when I had the idea, uh, maybe around yeah, late 2008 for for the Autoblow.
1: That's crazy. And can you give people context just like today, like what that is and like the scale your business is at?
0: Yeah. So uh, we, we sell Autoblow on, uh, we have one main e-commerce website. That's autoblow.com. Uh, where we sell direct to people in the U.S. and Canada and a few people from outside. But then the Audible are two devices, uh, Audible AI and Audible 2 Plus XT. They sit on most shelves of adult stores in the U.S., Canada, most countries in Europe and Australia. So um, yeah, it has pretty wide distribution. People in the adult toys business know about it because they resell it. And a lot of people, uh, many uh, tens of thousands of people search for it on Google every month. And we we start we we moved up into the eight digit sales like two or three years ago.
1: That's insane. And so you have this eight figure business that's really backed, essentially by a core product, which I think retails around like three hundred bucks is what it's showing on your website, two fifty to three hundred. So as you're coming with this idea and putting it out there, like when did you realize you had something special? Like oh wow, this is this is starting to work.
0: When we first started selling kind of a very basic version in 2008, it was easy at the time to rank highly in Google. And so the business wasn't based so much, I think, on the product at the time in 2008. It was mainly based on our ability to put it in front of people when they searched for this kind of product. So after we started building some scale, I would say in the first couple of years of doing that. I realized like, wow, the, the product I was selling was not amazing. It was an okay product for 2008 times, 2008, 2009, 2010. But around maybe 2011, I started thinking, if I could make this product awesome, then I, I could, you know, really, really scale the business because people are quite interested buying this okay product that they're, they're finding easily. But if I had a great product that they would find easily, then, you know, everything's possible, you know, retail stores, like bigger online distribution. So uh, I really set sort of a a path forward from 2011 or 12 to 2014. That was development time of turning this sort of novelty item into something that was more like a kitchen appliance.
1: So I have some questions because, you know, I'm kind of working on like manufacturing, like a men's grooming product and making a product is freaking hard and it takes so much longer than I realized. And my thing is it should be quite simple. You're working on a device that's going onto a a very sensitive part of the body. Like talk to me about like, how do you build something like that? Like that, that, I mean, if if it goes wrong, you're going to have some very, very bad reviews. Like what advice would you give to people as you're like, or like lessons learned from going through the manufacturing of that?
0: I wasted a year of time with a factory in Taiwan. It was good and bad because the the main, uh, even I was living in China, it was hard for me to know who to trust. That's, I think, a main issue. People are like, well, how do I know who to trust? Because uh, the factory will just make it on their own, maybe. But anyway, a factory contacted me from Taiwan and they actually had done research and they said, hey, we've seen your product online and uh, we think that you're selling an okay amount, but we can make the product better for you. So I thought this is amazing. These people contacted me and they seem okay. They actually specialized in digital whiteboards, uh, kind of like Wi-Fi connected whiteboards. And, uh, that was a big mistake because they had no understanding of our industry, the materials, the, they weren't mechanically inclined people at that factory. And, um, after a year, The sort of prototype they delivered to me was no better than the original product that i gave to them for improvement so uh, i happened to be at an adult industry conference in las vegas uh, just walking the show and i met a guy uh, who also i found out lived in china an american taiwanese guy and we started talking and i told him i was looking for a factory and he happened to run a factory that is also working for other famous adult toy brands and really that relationship just meeting that guy at a show. Uh, And that's the same main factory that I work with today. That really started the process. I basically gave them a list. Here's my list of things that the old product is not good at doing. And that's what, here's what the new product needs to do. Like, I think it should have beads that go around that look like this. Like I just sort of gave them a list and they actually have a development studio. and, And the first version they were able to develop for me at their development studio at the factory based on all of my requirements that said, the first version to the version, the 2000 sort of 14 version to the today version, now we have to do that development process on our own because it's become a lot more high-tech and, and the development work is more specialized. But at the time, the factory was able to take my laundry list and incorporate them, 80% of them, into a, a device.
1: So you're finally starting to nail a product. You're like, this thing is 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 good and it's working. Now, let's go into that next phase. How do you like scale this? Like, it's doing well, but how do you go to that next level of growth? And you like, I put this on a lens like, we work with a lot of D2C e commerce startups where, oh, you want to grow, spend on Facebook and Instagram and all these other channels. You have some limitations, which could be seen as a disadvantage. However, you have grown at an insane rate and you've done something extremely well. And that is grow through non traditional ways and, and grow through press. Like, can you talk about, like, what were some of those key, like, events or moments that, that helped you, like, get to that next level of growth with press or, or other channels?
0: Yeah. So as people may or may not know, adult toys may not advertise on Facebook, uh, all of the, none of the content networks, Taboola, Rev content, blah, 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 not, none of them. Uh, we can't even now they're actually even uh, starting to take down YouTube videos of people just reviewing our product or making jokes about it. I mean, comedians making jokes, uh, they can make jokes about anything, but if they make a joke about auto Blow, they can get their video taken down. So we're quite restrained in one way, but in another way, we're not. So the key first thing that we did that got us, um, on, on the radar was uh, crowdfunding so this was in 2014. We crowdfunded the Audubon Two on Indiegogo, and uh, it became. I think we raised like 250 or 275 thousand dollars of you know pre-sales on Indiegogo. But the media picked up this story because it was me in the pitch video. Normally, you know, traditionally, and even still, mostly it's adult brands hire fake people to front their brand, porn people, porn stars, or Whatever, but it was me, and I made this video about the product, and it's kind of cringy for me. It's hard for me to watch it now, but it was ridiculous. And the news story was: look at this like cringy video, and people are actually clearly wanting this device because there's thousands of people who are pre pre. There's thousands of pre orders, so that became a news story, and that news story went viral around the world back in 2014. And so I think the foundation of the of our Uh, the rest of our sort of strategy involves um, some press coverage and it all starts with the proof that people are interested in news about my inventions and that that kind of news is going to be good for their audience and it's going to be good for their visitors.
1: Gotcha. And so it's like, it also, it just starts with like the category in it in your product that that in itself is press worthy and, and you're behind it. And so people pick that up and amplify it. What, what else? Because I mean, I'm looking at your sizzle reel we were just talking about, like, it's insane the press you've gotten. You've been on like GQ, Playboy, HBO, Forbes, Vice, recently just on Howard Stern. As you look back, what are some of the the, the key moments and any advice you could give to people that want to be good at press. Cause that's something everybody wants, but it's so hard to be like, all right, let me go out and get press. It's like, well, you got to do something press worthy.
0: Yeah. I think people also ask me that they'll say, you know, like, Oh, could you introduce me to your like PR person or whatever? And it's like, you're not going to get press on like, like a bookshelf or whatever, <laughs> you know? So I actually, you know, I learned from, from that experience in 2014 that I will, to only invent things that are pressworthy, to only invent things that are truly interesting things for the public to learn about, right? Uh, and I learned how to do, you know, my, uh, basically I've created a bunch of stunts over the years and and media have picked up on them because they're actually good stories. For example, we held a vaginal beauty contest. That went viral across the world in, I don't know what what that was, 2015. And the, the news was this guy put up this page for a vaginal beauty contest. And the crazy thing is people are actually visiting it and submitting pictures and people are coming. I mean, we had millions and millions of people visiting and many, many people submitting pictures. And that event blew up to such an extent that at the time it was Elite Daily. Elite Daily flew a crew out to Germany to witness this kind of, we were 3D, we used technology that was sort of pressworthy. We 3D scanned the winners to put them on the tops of our products. That was like the story. And so, and this was an interesting use of a new technology at the time of 3D scanning technology, because most of that kind of uh, replication of women's body parts for products was done with clay molds uh, by hand or with casting. So that was a kind of, it, there was a tech story there, and it was interesting for us to be able to use the latest technology. And at the time then, you know, the scale of what had happened on Indiegogo, plus this contest, you know, uh, a journalist from, wrote an article for Playboy, like a profile for Playboy, followed me around, went to the factory, went with me to Germany, another journalist came. So we just sort of learned to understand how to create events that I had a lot of fun with, but also were interesting, you know, culturally and technologically interesting for media to write about. Uh, And there were more, like I made a the thing that comes to mind is the, uh, the automobile blow. I made an attachment for a Tesla that allows people who drive the Tesla to attach an auto blow, uh, so that they can enjoy a blowjob while their car drives itself. That's like a culturally and technologically interesting thing to be able to have a blowjob when your car drives itself. So, uh, car websites and other websites like vice, they wrote about that because that is a, a new thing that's happened in the world. So, yeah, and there's been more, you know, a, a, a masturbator specifically made for men in the military, et, et cetera. So it's sort of a combination of like understanding what culturally is interesting for people at a given time, and at the same time, um, understanding the limitations of what uh, mainstream media outlets can work with, and sort of positioning the story right on the towards the end of the thing. It's not too saucy, but it's just saucy enough that they're willing to explain the story to their listeners and their listeners or watchers share and enjoy the content.
1: There's some good takeaways there or one, you write a trend like, Tesla's coming out, everybody's going to be talking about how can you be a part of the conversation and doing it in kind of an insane creative way. Um, Another one is you're leveraging new technology combined with the fact that you're doing something that I have never heard of with the beauty pageant like that. Um, And then 3D rendering. I mean, there's a lot of things to take away where you have this unfair advantage just with the category you're in that when you put these things on top of it, you're literally creating these insane events.
0: Yeah, and, and it it reminds me also like with AutoBlow AI, you know, we actually conducted a machine learning study of the actions that occurred during blowjobs. I hired like real AI scientists to do this and we discovered the movements and then replicated the movements in the machine. So this is interesting. Other companies just like, oh, we released a product today and it has 10 modes. It's like, no, 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 we went really deep. Like what are the 10 modes gonna do? What have other people never done? And then on top of it, to make sure that people understand that it was interesting, uh, I produced a short film, like a ten-minute documentary, about how we uh, that it basically goes. It, we went to to Serbia and we filmed the guys who had to watch a thousand hours of blowjob videos to input the data. We flew the film crew to Canada to meet the AI scientists. We met the we went to the place where the guys in Canada helped me to um, co uh, helped me to invent the product as well. And we really told the story and then we released the film online and we got some press around this short film explaining a thing that, so it's basically a combined entertainment with the technology. And I think that's sort of, at least for us, the key, but I do think it's a difficult strategy to follow for people who don't have particularly interesting uh, products, like culturally interesting products.
1: That's insane. I didn't even know about that documentation of it. That, that's really smart. And one thing that kind of really astounds me is you're running this like fast growing, well into eight figure company. You have a core flagship product. Talk about your team. Because when I see these D2C startups, they just raise 20 million bucks. They get a, a nice office in Soho. All of a sudden they have headcount of 60 people. Like, what does your operation look like?
0: Yeah. Every time I see uh, uh, companies, especially in my space, boasting about how many people they have, I think like you are boasting about the wrong thing. Uh, You know, part of my goal since the beginning, it was number one, I made the decision never to take uh, money from investors and two, to keep my headcount relatively low because I don't think that for me, it would be fun. I don't want to work in, I don't want to run a big company people wise. And I saw a lot of friends of mine get really bogged down in the kind of ugly, uninteresting day to day details of running companies that have rooms full of people. So our structure is quite unusual for our size. It's basically, uh, it's me. uh, I have a a guy, like a partner I've worked with many, many years in Romania, in Alex, He controls all the technical side of the business, him and kind of one guy, sometimes he has one or two guys that that, uh, uh, help him in Romania and everyone else. uh, we have some customer service, a few customer service people, but other than that sort of core team of like several customer service and the technical person or two, everyone else is hired on demand only for things that we need. So, for example, uh, we use Upwork. Uh, I've used Upwork when it was Get a Freelancer since 2008. Uh, then it was Odesk. Now it's Upwork, and now I have a pretty good list of people I, I go to when I need specific things. But for example, uh, many companies of our size certainly would have a few designers on staff. But I don't believe in. Um, I don't believe that many people are multi-talented. Okay, so we have designers uh, that I, I hire as needed, but. For example, some of them only do graphics for, uh, one of them only does 3D renderings. A guy, a great guy from uh, Ukraine. Another guy in Argentina, uh, I go to him only for uh, some design needs. Like we needed a new auto picture with some words written in a specific way, or, oh, I needed a poster for retail stores. He makes me that kind of stuff. There's another guy in Brazil. This one guy and his team in Brazil have made all of my product packaging since, you know, I don't know, 2015 or something. And then there are specialists for banners. If I need banners, if they're video banners, go to one guy. If they're other kind of banners, go to another guy. So I I hire only those kind of people on demand. And the same with if we have a, when we did our AI um, study, we looked at what we could do ourselves with it. But I thought, okay, I need to hire out a company. So there are a lot of companies, like five or 10 people, companies specialized in all kinds of stuff around the world that I've hired for you know, um, niche work. Like uh, you'll notice on our website, we have animations. We explain things to our customers through animation. So there's a studio that I've used for many years. And you know that guy and his team have always done our animation work, but I don't need to keep some kind of animator on staff. And it goes like that for everything. There are probably dozens of people who I know, who I can contact at any time. I might not be able to get them today. For example, like the 3D designer, he's excellent. And if I have a new project, like I just got a bunch of graphics done. I said, Hey, Dennis, I need the stuff. He's like, okay, in, you know, 15 days, I'll be free. So I say, okay, i wait 15 days. So I miss, you know, in a way being able to get that kind of thing done immediately, but I gain not having someone sitting around doing nothing. So yeah, there's very few people I need to have actually uh, interactions with on a daily basis.
1: Gotcha. So every D to C founder that's listening to this about to jump out the window. You're you're like well need figures and you have basically less than five people um running. And what the other I think lesson learned there is like you because I think a lot of startups starting out, you have issues of like do you go for the generalist or the specialist? And a lot of times I see they start with the generalist who can help, and then as you grow, you go to the specialist. But what you're doing is you have this almost like Rolodex of specialists on an as-needed basis that you're able to leverage, so you can be really good and efficient. But you're also not, yeah, you know, wasting time or like spending money on high overhead. And also, just man, the issues that come with managing people and whatnot is 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 definitely. Um, you know time consuming as well dude that's super impressive.
0: I, I mean I've noticed you know especially in in EO um, a lot of people uh, often a topic is about like company culture you know and I don't know that anyone would say that my company has a, a culture. there's a, the people who I interact with we kind of we know each other we chat about stuff once in a while but I don't know that I don't get into so many details with so many people because our interactions are really mostly by email or by some kind of chat, and it's mainly about the work. And I think if you would add up the time savings uh, over the last you know, uh, 13 years I've been doing this, I think it's quite a lot to be able just to email a guy and say, hey, here's my renderings project. And he says, okay, I'll have you your draft in 15 days. And that's the only interactions we needed. That is actually a huge time savings multiplied times all the people I've needed to hire, to get to where we are.
1: Yeah. It's just a matter of like you project managing it is, is the only issue, but you'd still be doing that if people were in-house. Um, no, man, that's, that's super impressive. So here's what I'm interested in because we work with a lot of companies where they're like, you know, Hey, how do we get to our like a million or 2 million? And then we work with companies that are like, Hey, I want to get to 10 million and then companies that want to get to 20 million. You've done all of that. What, has changed as far as, you know, different channels that have worked for you online, offline, or the the different, you know, ways you've gone to those different milestones. Cause the way we see it is you can easily get to 1 million on the back of one channel doing like Facebook ads or whatever. As you, you go up, we're seeing people need to get more organic traffic, more referral traffic. We then see companies getting better doing offline and online. One thing that you've done, like, so well as you've had offline working and not just in one market, but you're literally global. So I don't know if you could speak to like the path of like, as you grew, like that was because of these channels that opened up or these different things you were doing.
0: You know, there was a time that we sold on, we never sold Autoblow on Amazon. We sold other kind of white label products on Amazon and that provided some revenue, but in the end, for us, Amazon just became a timed a very a high risk time suck. And the, one of the best moves I ever made was to liquidate all of our inventory for Amazon and pledge to never sell on Amazon again. Uh, I think people are, uh, and like, like us, we were, we were sort of awed by the size of what was possible on Amazon. But once we got into the nitty gritty of the details of actually selling there, it is a dystopian nightmare of a company to put it politely. <laughs> so I think that, you know, there's also, we, we tried a bit with eBay and some other marketplaces, but you know, actually the main thing that we have we the biggest return on our investment of time was just uh, making people find out about our brand name from some kind of channel online so that when they shop in stores, I mean, that was another phase was starting to sell to stores uh, but the reason people often buy it in stores is because they know about the brand from the internet and store store staff tell us that. So really, we've put all of our resources into almost all of our resources, uh, looking back at making people know, know and search for the Autoblow brand name uh, when they go to Google and do a search. Um, that's pretty much it.
1: So when you say all of your resources, does that mean... The the efforts you're doing for these PR stunts and press and putting it out there, it's really to do this halo effect of they need to know this brand. So when they're in the buyer's mindset, it's top of mind. Is is that what you're getting at?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we advertise. You know, we we sell a, a relatively more expensive um, adult product, so we can afford, uh, and we've become technically excellent at advertising on large porn platforms. So we can relatively profitably advertise on the largest porn websites in the world. And so when we're getting eyeballs of people who are watching porn, those people aren't exactly buyers. It's not like great traffic, but they are people who may eventually get the idea to buy a sex toy, especially for the first time. And um, so just having that in so many millions of people's minds is helpful. The media is helpful for that as well especially the media that people talk about. So we sometimes we sponsor YouTubers, uh, videos, and so, you know, that have like a very active fan base. So once, uh, you know, uh, Audible appears in a video, then we find out on their Reddit that their community is talking about it. That kind of stuff just spreads. And so over many, many years, yeah, our basically a single goal is just to get brand name recognition for the brand so that people know, oh, Audible, that's the best, like, you know, automatic sex toy
1: for men. So I've, I've heard of some other startups that were advertising on like porn and adult websites. I heard it was really good from uh impressions share and like brand awareness. It was, it was tough for conversion, but are you seeing like efficiencies by doing that? Or is it, is it pretty competitive over there?
0: It's very competitive, uh, especially because as uh, weed has become legal in different places, the weed companies have started competing for the, uh, ads on, uh, on the porn networks. So that's not that good because before there were already, there were porn subscription websites and there were cams websites and there were some toys, but now there are more and more industries, especially cannabis, um, is okay advertising on porn sites. So it costs, it, it's mainly, it's not such a driver of direct sales, but it is good for our, branding, but it is expensive. And we have had to learn how to be technically excellent at doing that, including um, working with APIs and spending enough money to get API access to such resources.
1: Gotcha. Super interesting. Um, So, I, you probably don't like giving advice just with like the, 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 way EO goes, but like for anybody that's getting started in e-commerce, like what, what advice or what would you tell them if they're trying to like go all in on their own thing?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I hate advice, but I think <laughs> one of the kind of the most valuable thing that I ever did for my business is to focus on this single, uh, brand, you know, at one time we thought uh, we would have, Autoblow would be like one brand. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to have like all these adult brands. And I made a, 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 uh, I made all kinds of stuff. I made, used to make artificial vaginas and anal toys. And I made a women's brand called Ladygasm. And I had different kinds of Ladygasm products. So I thought I was going to be multi-brand. And that was my uh, sort of way I was going to start selling more and more and more. And what I found later was that all I had done is just split my time from the thing I was best at, which is selling automatic sex toys to men and things I was not so good at selling, uh, things that are commonly sold by other people, you know? So I think I I learned, I should specialize in one, uh, that it was after expanding and wasting a lot of time. I think the best thing that we ever did as a business is focus only on developing and improving basically like two devices, and now we're going to make a few more devices in the next couple of years, but let's say we have only four products. There are not that many companies that specialize in so few products. And um, all of the efforts that we put in continue to differentiate ourselves from competing products. Whereas if we tried to focus on other things at the same time, we would lose our edge on um, the thing that we're good at, which are making these mechanical uh, devices.
1: Man, I'm a little envious. Focus is so hard because I, well, it sounds like you've kind of gone through the the shiny object syndrome that I think everybody does, but you've been disciplined to come back to just focus and like the the numbers and results kind of speak for itself. When did you go all in on kind of the core product and like discard everything else?
0: I think it was by now, uh, maybe something like five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And to do that was, was painful. We had... Um, we had inventory that, you know, when we left Amazon, we had uh, half a million dollars of inventory of cost. I sold that to a chain for $125,000. It was two or three, I think it was three, 353 foot trucks full of stuff and just saying goodbye to it. Uh, taking that was a $375,000 loss. And then once we closed, we had other websites that were selling that stuff as well. That was our Amazon inventory, but closing down these additional websites, selling that stuff, throwing stuff in the garbage. I mean, you know, uh, throwing $10,000 of, of vibrators where the batteries had expired, you know, into the garbage was not easy to do, but we were paying storage on it. So making that transition actually cost uh, money, but, but it, it provided a huge, I think, profitability boost in, in the long run.
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks really smart looking back, but I'm sure at the time you're like, is this the right move? I hope it is, but um, it clearly paid off. One question i like to last ask everybody as we kind of end this is, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you in your career?
0: I don't think anyone's ever done anything nice <laughs> for me uh, in my career, actually. But, um, you know, when I go back to, I, I can think about a few positive moments. Really, it, it's around getting uh, the Audible into retailers in the U.S. and in Europe. You know, after the product was for sale on the internet and uh, people were really buying it, this was after it was crowdfunded, after we were selling Audible too. People uh, were searching for it, and had good Google search. We went to some event to try to meet the retailers, and uh, a lot of the you know the retailers came from a different universe. Even though we had so many Google searches, a lot of retailers were like, oh, I never heard of this thing. And It's like, yeah, because you don't really use the internet, I guess, that much. And so most of them tried to like, critique the, the product. They'd say, oh, if you did this, maybe you would be better. And it's like, no, 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 no. The product is already how it's going to be, okay? So you're either buying it or not. So uh, there were a few people at this event who believed me because uh, they literally didn't believe me when I said, people know this brand. When they walk in your store, they're going to know the brand because they know it on the internet, and they were like, I don't believe – they basically didn't – they didn't tell me I don't believe, but they didn't believe me. So I um, I have very positive feelings towards a few of the adult shop chain owners who um, trusted me that I was telling them the truth. And they were rewarded with being early sellers of the item as well. Um, but, I, yeah, I have a kind of like fond memories of those people who um, – I mean it's not so – it sounds like a normal thing to do just to believe someone, but most people, they didn't believe us that the product was popular on the internet. So I appreciated that those people, yeah, believed me and took a chance to take some inventory and let me prove it to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough to get into retail with traditional products. I don't know with, with this category, but it's like getting that break. I mean, that's a huge unlock. I mean, can you speak to, um, like your overall revenue? Like how much is online versus offline?
0: We actually sell most, I mean, I don't know the, uh, the breakdown we we sell, we have more revenue generated from our online sales. That's awesome. Than we do from offline sales, but we sell a lot of pieces offline because they're not as profitable to sell. So I don't know what the piece breakdown, but definitely we sell more revenue wise D to C than we do B to B.
1: That's awesome. Then you can actually own the relationship with the customer. Well, Brian, this was awesome, man. This is, it's insane what you've built, but what, um, if people want to learn more about you or what you're working on, what, where should, uh, where can we point them?
0: I guess they could just go to, um, they can go to autoblow.com. They want to see, uh, our devices. And if they want to look at our company page, they can go to V like Victor I E C I.com, uh, V I E C I to just check out sort of our webpage and our media. And they could get in, in touch with us, um, through the
1: contact page there and that's awesome and again like i said i mean your press is insane you're just on howard stern like joe rogan's talked about it um and there, there's a really cool sizzle reel there if people want to see what, what, what all you've accomplished uh, but brian thank you so much for the time man
0: yeah thanks for having me and i hope that uh people found an interesting uh or useful uh piece of information or two
1: Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com.